there. I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Eudora Welty's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Optimist Daughter. Mary Jo Tate is rejoicing somewhere in Tennessee, and I'm rejoicing because I'm back. I get to be back on the show with you guys. This is so exciting. The gang is back together again. We needed this. I'm no longer suffering from norovirus. Welching all the rumors that you have been... (laughs) Dead. There's a mysterious disappearance. Oh, yeah. Usurped. I don't know if that's the right word. (laughs) I've been reading uh, David Grant's book, The Wager. He's an incredible nonfiction writer, and it's basically about this very famous shipwreck where these guys... Um, there was a shipwreck and then a, like six months later, 80 guys showed back up in Brazil or somewhere and they became heroes. But then six months later, 10 more guys showed up and they were like, they're not heroes. There was a mutiny. And so it was this big controversy. Oh, so no. it's this, it's, it's an incredible book. I and him. so he I have the idea. The flower moon. Yeah. Which is, is an incredible book. Yeah. He just yeah. came out last week. Yep. Wow, wow. So I've had mutiny yeah. on my, on my brain. So I guess that's where that came from. On the brain. Well, I will be hailed as a hero after we usurp your place. <laughs> and then no when, I show, back, <laughs> when, when I, I show back, when I show back up later, I'll be like, not so fast, my friends. <laughs> um, we are here to discuss The Optimist Daughter, which in a way is also about mutiny. We're going to discuss the first two parts of this, of this book. Um, a little bit of background before we dig in. This was published in 1972 as a book, but first it was published as a long story in The New Yorker in March of 1969, back when people read those things and, and magazines like The New Yorker were the the introduction to great fiction. Um, in a and way you that, could live on the money you made from writing stories truly. for places like oh, this. Yeah. It's true. It's like? true. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, it'd be amazing. Um Nowadays, I mean, they still publish fiction, but it's not not publishing long stories that win the Pulitzer Prize. You know, right. she she did expand it, revise it, you know, to make it more of a book form, which is what one ended up winning the Pulitzer. But it started as that long story in the New Yorker in March of 1969. So it's appropriate that we're reading it in the spring. I think. Um, I think this is a very springy novel, in, in despite its themes. We can talk about that a little bit, maybe. Um, I just want to give a shout out before we go. I, I mentioned Mary Jo Tate is rejoicing somewhere in Tennessee. And if this episode is dropping on Monday, what is that? The the 24th, I think we're recording on the 19th. So it's the 24th. Yeah. So that means that either today or tomorrow in, in what's the word tandem with this episode going up, Mary Jo Tate wrote a sort of starter kit to Eudora Welty's career. Because she's a huge fan, is very knowledgeable about Eudora Welty's work, and that's getting published on the Substack on at Close Reads HQ. So if you want to know more about Eudora Welty and you want to, you know, figure out where to go next, or you want to know about her themes and her life, then you can check out that that essay by uh, Mary Jo Tate on Eudora Welty. So thanks to her for writing that. And awesome, yeah, she's very knowledgeable. Also, she's a great uh, copy editor, and if you ever need a project copy edited, she's a great option. <laughs> I posted a thread on the Substack chat where I asked, you know, what's your experience with Eudora Welty? Have you read her before? Is this the first time? Either way, what's your impressions? So I want to ask the two of you that same question. I'll start with you, Heidi. Um, do you, other than the story that we read together, have you read any other Eudora Welty? I have read some of her short fiction. I've never read a novel by her. Okay. Okay. What's your first impressions? I mean, other- I love her. She's wonderful. Like her, craft is amazing she's funny uh and along with the humor is just this undercurrent of like a depth of humanity that mm. i love i love that so mm. i need to read more of her along with all the many other novels I, yeah. i'm actually just not very well read so i just need to read more <laughs> well ultimately line, i'm taking ultimately even the most well-read people are, in the grand scheme gap. of things, not that well-read. It's a gap in my education, for sure. Sean, what kind of uh, gap is Eudora Welty in your education, or is it a great strength? Uh, no, I also have a big Eudora-shaped hole in my <laughs> in my reading history. I I too have read. I think I have read two of her short stories. And I own them all, and so it makes me feel all the. You own the big collection. I read them. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I've read uh, Why I Live at the PO, and uh, I think that is such a great I'll, story. I'll, oh, it's it's great, which is another reason that makes it ridiculous that I haven't read more. Uh, and then A Worn Path, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, she's especially. I mean, there's there are lots of other things going on in those stories, but uh, she seems technically uh, quite masterful and uh, mm. in her short fiction. How about you, David? <laughs> You love Southern fiction. I can imagine that you have no Eudora Welty shaped hole. Well, I'll say this. My uh, it's I wouldn't call it a strength, actually. I haven't read. I've read several of the stories and I've read a good portion of her memoir, One Writer's Beginnings. Mm-hmm. And I think I read um, Delta Wedding. I think that's the one that I read. But that was like during college. And I haven't gone back to it and for no other reason than you can only read so many things. Right? I've always really admired, admired her work. You know, we're going to be one of her stories is going to be included in the event we're doing in Atlanta Close in August. Where we're, the road. That's right. Where we talk about, you know, the the themes of faith and home in Southern literature. So alongside Carson McCullers and Wendell Berry and, you know, a bunch of other people, we're going to be talking about Eudora Welty. So if you want to come join us for that, there are still some seats available. So I just, you know, I'm just going to throw that out there before we dig you into this it. conversation. Do it. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, if you know, you're going to regret not coming, I just feel like that's you know when when all the pictures are posted and people are leaving comments about how what a great time they had mm-hmm. uh, going to see Shakespeare uh, with Tim and oh, having conversations in Tim's church. I mean, you don't want to miss out on that. It's just yeah, just going to throw that out there. Okay, um, there's a few questions that came up on that thread that I want to that I want to go to. I think they're worth addressing. But before we answer some of those questions, um, or I don't know if struggles or they're just things that people have brought up. I'd love to hear what you think each of you, the strengths of these two first parts are. We were texting a little bit about it, but I don't, we didn't put it, I didn't put it quite in this way. Heidi, for you, you said it kind of keeps getting better and better and yeah. better. That's what you said right before we started recording. Yeah. I think what originally that? what I had said was I like it, but it's not wowing me yet. And then oh, later, yeah, yeah. That later I was like, okay, I I'm wowed. I really like this story. I think the first part is just such a well-constructed introduction to the characters and conflicts of the novel, but I felt like I didn't really get it until the second, until part two. Um, Mm. And not, not that I didn't get it in the sense of I didn't understand what was going on, but I get I it didn't grab me really hard until the second part. And hmm. I'm wondering if that's intentional because it's putting uh because the place is introduced, right? They're back in their home, their actual hmm. home. Yeah. Um, and then it just kind of opens up, I felt like. Um, and I don't hmm. think that's a weakness in the novel at all. Um, I think that we're we're supposed to be at dis a bit disoriented at the beginning. Uh because so are all of the characters. And mm. so that sense of kind of like, wait, where am I putting the weight of my understanding on this novel? What's the conflict in the novel, right? Where is all of this grief? Um, yeah. Like, what's the source of it and the conflict of it? I think it, um, I think that the fact that that opens up in the second part is speaks to the strength of the craft of the novel. Um mm. And I just, it's just a pleasure to read something so tightly constructed and the dialogue's just delightful. Everything about the dialogue. Every time someone talks, I'm like, a master is at work. (laughs) (laughs) You mean because of there's this, is this a go to the back to that complaint that I always make where some the voices aren't distinct enough. It just feels like the writer's voice creating dialogue, but here you get these distinct voices. Is that kind of yeah, what you mean? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And then I think part of it is is the multiple layers of meaning that are uh, mm. uh, that are revealed in the characterization and the plot of the novel and the themes of the novel. Um, every time someone's referring to sight, for example, we're not just talking about physical sight. We're talking about the perception mm-hmm. um, of the internal yeah. world, those kinds of things that... Um, make that dialogue multi-layered um, like it absolutely is great on the surface level but it also is functioning mm. at a deeper literary and psychological level which I just find really delightful to read dialogue like that um, yeah 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 so yeah Sean yeah what do you think uh, I, I've had a similar experience but I I'm I'm hooked by by the craft and the technique but I still feel uh, a drift 
as far as what this novel is trying to accomplish or what or what I'm supposed to want from the novel. And by still, you mean at the end of these two parts? At the end of these two parts. Yeah. Uh, especially because the the uh, for all for all intents and purposes, the main character is mm-hmm. is still so hollow. Uh, the the least vividly drawn character so far is Laurel. What do you mean by hollow? Is that difference than sh- is that a different thing than shallow? Uh, I think so. <laughs> I think so, or at least potentially. There, you Laurel herself perceives everything that's happening and does almost nothing, uh, and okay. so we yeah. seem that we seem to see through her eyes. Uh, and she has a few moments of strong feeling and even fewer moments of strong reaction, outward reaction as a result of those strong feelings. And otherwise is really just observing the, the behavior, which especially in part two is um, you know, sometimes absurd uh, <laughs> uh, behavior of the, the other characters. And so, so I'm really, I'm really, waiting for laurel to emerge which maybe is uh requires the kind of solitude that she's finally going to have uh she has as heidi said she was away from home away from her ancestral home away from her contemporary practical home uh in this weird artificial reality that is you know hospital existence yeah yeah uh and and then when she comes back to her family home, which she has been estranged from for a while because of the presence of Faye, uh, it's also, you know, this very unusual circumstance and the house is full of people. And uh, so it seems like there's a lot of promise there uh, at the end of part two for maybe what I'm hoping for. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I do feel like uh, things are still in in transition, that I haven't found a groove in the novel to settle into and, and sort of uh follow like i don't so, know i don't know what a satisfying end to this book looks like for me at this point hmm. sometimes by the time you're halfway through a novel you can say well i see here's what would satisfy me at the end you know if it if it went this way or that way but i really don't i don't know is that because we don't know what the desires of our character are i think so great <laughs> so yes, okay i think so heidi well either of you you know sean you said she's observing yeah you said basically we 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 get her observations but we don't get necessarily interiority out of her so to speak heidi you mentioned that there is this theme of vision of seeing yeah. that comes up mm-hmm. in the dialogue also in a lot of the descriptions like the idea of light and dark is constantly brought up and even in Laurel's observations of the space around her, she's noticing light and dark a lot, which of course is related to this eye surgery that mm-hmm. her father has. So do you think Heidi, that what Sean is pointing to is related to that? That, yeah. that what we have is we have an observant character who is doing, who is seeing, but not interpreting. And thus we have a hard time interpreting her because all we're getting is what she sees, not how she feels about it or what she thinks about it. I think that's a good way of putting it. I think that Laurel is, we, we, there's this interesting layering of narrative perception in the story. Um, So it's written in the third person, but we're definitely be, it's, definitely limited omniscient right like we're seeing through laurel's eyes mm-hmm. uh and we are it's written so as to be sympathetic to laurel and suspicious of our antagonist Faye, right and mm-hmm. but what we know about laurel doesn't come from within her it comes from observing her right for example, when we in in part two, we have her comments that are taking place at the viewing of her father's body and things like I want the casket closed and she doesn't get that. I want to have um, I want them to stop telling false stories about my dad. Right. But right. we don't get that. And 
We don't have any narrative voice telling us whether she's right about the fact that those aren't real stories about her father. Mm -hmm. And we have a comment from Adele saying uh, that everybody sees the dead through their own perceptions. And of course, we're given that so that we know that maybe that's happening to Laurel too. So it's a very complex um, narrative voice. And we, I think to your point, Sean, we don't know where we can put our, our interpretive weight down within the story. There's always this sense of disequilibrium in which we're trying to make a judgment and we can't, um, Mm. other than we know somehow that Faye is just this gold digging, doesn't deserve to be there. Right. But everybody has a case of blindness to them and we can't quite see clearly. And all I am, all the only thing I want to your point, Sean, the only thing I actually find myself wanting to happen is for Laurel to get alone and for us to know what she's thinking. Yeah. Mm. Yep. So you mentioned this idea of Faye being an antagonist. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that that got brought up on the chat thread over on a close reads HQ is somebody said something to the effect of, I have a hard time seeing Faye as anything but sort of like a comic villain. Mm. And that that's a limitation for this person. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I should have gone and checked who said this. Um, and yet the name Faye is interesting because yeah. is not Faye mean fairy? Yeah. Right. And that could be either good or evil. Yeah. Um, like in fairy tales and things like that. Um, were you going to say something about that, Sean? Well, I I had questions about a lot of the names in the novel and mm-hmm. if there was as much significance as there seemed to be. Uh, Faye, Laurel. I mean, it's a even it's a funeral, and there's a character named Tennyson. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Major was it Major Bullock? Yeah. 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 Um, how did you have thoughts like on this? It was like a bull in the china shop for yeah. sure, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, is it Tennyson? Yeah. Tennyson's the one who like takes over the room, right? Like when she speaks, everyone listens. Oh, yeah. That the one? Mm-hmm. I thought that yeah. was pretty funny too. To give her the name of a poet who just like thinks she's poetic and has all the 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 ability to command the room with her words. Yeah. Did you have thoughts on this, Heidi? Yeah, I do. I think that Faye is... Like the question that we all, I think, have about Faye... Is, is she just a gold digging, like sly, unfaithful wife or... Who feels sorry for herself. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. is she playing a part? Is she wicked or is she just... Is she wicked or is she foolish is really what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Like, is she... Mm-hmm. Like, there's that, that moment is so revealing when Laurel looks at the little boy, Wendell, and it's like, that's what Faye would have been like before... Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's interesting because I think that that creates a very interesting, um, kind of psychological interpretation of the story, trying to figure out who these characters are on a personal level and where they fit into this family saga. Um, and then also it, it's, if you zoom out from that, it's an interesting commentary also on Southern culture, which you have this high class versus low class Mm -hmm. kind of conflict and um i was thinking as i was reading that if i was watching this on like if i was if i was watching this it would be like so cringy but as i'm reading it i think it's just hilarious um and (laughs) also just like sad like it and that's what i meant with eudora welty and so many southern writers i think they excel at presenting the absurd as a uh, gateway into the profound. And, and yeah, yeah. This, that book, especially this book does that, especially Wanda's Wanda Faye's family. Like I was laughing my oh, head man. off about that scene where they're all talking about her son, Roscoe. Yeah. Killed himself. <laughs> I laughing so hard, but that's such a sad story. But it's and then there's the funny. other one. Yeah. Then there's the other one who won't come visit because he thinks his feelings should be considered. <laughs> Whatever. McDivitt, which that's DeWitt. Yeah. DeWitt, DeWitt, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, going back to the question of perspective and seeing. Yeah. We also don't know exactly, like, it would make sense for Laurel's perspective to be a little bit skewed on this woman who she doesn't necessarily know whether she's trustworthy, whether she was trying to take advantage of her father. She's This is a woman who's also replacing her mother 
phase replacing yeah. Laurel's mother. So and we're seeing all of really this. insensitive about that fact. <laughs> and hostile, overtly <laughs> right. yeah. hostile. Right, yeah. right. And that could just be because she is, um, you know, insecure uh, or because she's wicked. That's uh, hard to say. But there's a sense in which, you know, we still have to decide whether or not we think Laurel is not, it's not a matter of being trustworthy, like as a narrator, but we're still getting her perspective. And right. that could be a little bit skewed, a little bit influenced by her feelings about the situation and, and her own trauma, I guess, of her mother dying and her father dying. And um, now having to figure out what I think of this person who I barely know, but seems a little over the top. Um, and I think that's where you're right. We wouldn't hopefully next we get inside of her head. We get to have that interiority and we get to have some emotion instead, you know, instead of just observation. Right. And the question is, we don't know yet whether that observation is tinged with emotion or whether it's reportage, which I think is, right. it's a fine line as a writer. Were you going to say something, Heidi? Yeah, I think I was like anxious I'm just laying out all of my feelings. I was anxious <laughs> at the end of part two about the house because I am such a play, like I'm such a believer in place and so influenced by so many Southern writers, including Wendell Berry, on the importance of the permanence of place. And I was so mad when. Faye's mom said she was going to turn into a boarding house and be the cook. I was yeah. like, no, I'm going to climb into this novel and get rid of this gold digging woman. <laughs> well, there you go. There's, yeah, there's some stakes there. You're invested. Yes. You, you, and when you're yelling at the book, you're invested. They, that's that's right. right. And when you're anxious about what's going to happen. So I wanted to protect the memories of this family and, and the place where where Laurel lived as a child. So I am invested in her story and I want to a certain extent what I think she should want, but I don't know if it's what she wants, right? Mm. And and then I also was a was then I was thinking about the judge and how it was him who essentially dies of blindness, right? And yeah. we don't even know why he died. Yeah. Like it's it's hidden from us. And so maybe that will come out in part three or maybe it remains a mystery but what we mm -hmm. do know is he had surgery for his eyes and three weeks later he's dead right that makes like that is a unexplained event in the story and i think if the blindness is time to take a shot an objective correlative <laughs> to the state of the of this character then all I, I can't help but wonder how could you leave not not just how could you marry this woman because I think we get some hints into that right she is she has this helplessness he wants to take care of her he's lonely mm -hmm. he obviously had a very uh, strong first wife and he's got this helpless childlike second wife like this makes a lot of sense on on a psychological level but there is a he is our first blind character. And mm -hmm. our most obviously blind character. And the thing that he has left behind, the legacy is left behind is, is this brokenness and conflict, which seems to me to be coming, to be moving towards his, uh, the home and the money, uh, as well as mm -hmm. then the memory of his daughter and the grief that she still seems to carry about her mother's loss and death. And then now she's, we find out she's a widow who lost her husband a year after she died, after they married. So yeah. I just expect part three to kind of, to trace these threads and give us a more complete picture of, I, I, I anticipate it might change into more like a memory novel. Mm. Yeah. And there's, there's a hint that, uh, in something the doctor says, and then in the circumstances themselves, that on some level, it was just being away from home for so long that may have killed her father. Uh, or at this this mm. time spent forcing him to stay in this strange place uh, and to live in a mode that is uh, he's not accustomed to, and that is really kind of inhuman for anybody to have to live in. Uh, but I wonder if there's not something there that he has, uh, in, in the ways that he has perhaps emotionally separated himself from, uh, you know, whatever the idea of home is here. And mm -hmm. in the end, 
is physically cut off from that also for a there's something restorative about it yeah well and if that's true then it matters that Faye is now has i mean not Faye. well yeah Faye leaving but also laurel coming back to that's home true. like what is is there a restorative function of home although Faye her is now that going she's home there too right. that's true that's true hmm. um do you see evidence that Faye is herself blind and obviously not physically blind but does that seem to be like what what our narrator is trying to create for us that Faye herself, her limitation is that she is essentially not wise, that she doesn't have Mm. enough vision to be wise about the people around her and her circumstances and that everybody else is kind of, kind of, they either think they're wise and they're not, or maybe they don't think they're wise and they are, you know, there's all these, it seems like there's a lot of different characters who are playing different objective correlative roles from that mm-hmm. perspective mm-hmm. like they have varying degrees of vision tied to varying degrees of wisdom or insight and laurel is trying to sort all that out and we're then trying to figure out where she falls in mm-hmm. that continuum of vision and wisdom vision and yeah. insight i think that's right and we want her to be the the character with insight right like that's what we want for her because she is mm-hmm. the optimist daughter <laughs> and she is mm-hmm. much more uh admirable and it then and has more poise uh than Faye who's the other character that we see and so we kind of are like rooting for we are rooting for Laurel but there's evidence within the text that she is is has her own level of blindness um in her response to in her grief response um on the funeral day Um, And she doesn't show it, though. She is, in a sense, I think to your point, Sean, that's really, I think that was very insightful. She's hidden from us in a lot of ways, even though she's the protagonist. And that means that we don't, we, since she's observing but not interpreting, as David says, then we feel like we're continually trying to interpret on her behalf. And that puts us a little bit on our back foot as readers. And it's kind of brilliant because Mm -hmm. now I'm just like, I can't wait for you to get alone. Like that just seems to be what this is converging towards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so think- we are in the sense of participating in her kind of panic and grief and not, we can't put our feet down the same way she can't. Anyway, David, sorry. No, 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 no. What you're saying just made me wonder, do you think that Welty is employing like kind of a Jane Austen style indirect discourse? Mm-hmm. I do. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. And that that's tied to the notion of, perspective or of point of view or of insight or seeing mm-hmm. like does that, that format is that form itself necessary to create that the impression to use another yeah. visual word it's certainly invaluable in doing mm-hmm. so yeah yeah and I, I felt that right away. It, it, a lot of these scenes feel like jane austen scenes mm-hmm. in a way just like in the south right a bunch of right, yeah. going yeah. to each other's houses <laughs> yeah. but the houses are really different That's yeah right, right yeah <laughs> they're shotgun houses yeah <laughs> um and it's a little warmer it's not it's not like you know it's uh they need ac i don't know that they need ac so much in uh, yeah. england in 1805 although major bullock <laughs> is still making fires in the fireplace yeah yeah well he's, you gotta stay busy man that's right <laughs> so a question was just raised in my mind by what you guys are saying here and it's is the book saying that optimism is different than insider wisdom because if they're draw suggesting if you know we're getting this idea that she's the optimist daughter but then it's there, there's this sort of underlying suggestion that maybe her, well we don't know maybe it's the mother that's the true optimist we haven't really met her very much yet only yeah. heard her name I'm, presumably we're going to get more of her later um it, if, especially if Heidi's right about it being a memory novel so i what's the connection between optimism and and wisdom or insight is one question that yeah, I have. That's, Maybe that's something. I that guess I had just assumed that her father was the optimist, but yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. So, um, and even, and not even, I, again, I wasn't even sure if that was, if the title was meant to be sincere or ironic. Right. Right. Yeah. Is he truly, was he ever truly an optimist? He says he's an yeah. optimist because he feels like he's, everything's going to go well with his surgery, but is he really being, <laughs> 
earnest about that. Like it's a little hard to tell whether he actually is being optimistic about it. And is that a, and is that a positive legacy, even if he is right? If Mm -hmm, he's optimistic mm -hmm. because he married Faye and thinks maybe that'll turn out. Okay. Like, (laughs) I don't know if that's the most, at least with the clues we have this far, if that's really a legacy that I wouldn't want from my father. Yeah. There's this line early on, like on page three or something, uh, page four, where it says that, um, it says Faye had slipped out somewhere, said Judge McKelvey, and then and bent her his benign smile that looked so much like a scowl. <laughs> and I was thinking, if he is the optimist, that is a weird way to describe an optimist of <laughs> someone with a benign smile that looks like a scowl. Yeah. So that's made me it goes to your idea there. Maybe there's an irony in, in in calling him that. Yeah. We have a little bit of time left here. Should we you want to read the beginning? These first couple of pages, I think, are really should we do a close read i guess of the first couple pages because i think they're really precise and they really they introduce so much and i i think there's a lot of jane austen in the first page yeah um, in that free indirect discourse thing but i mean or was this is this too pedantic and we shouldn't we shouldn't do this i like it let's do it (laughs) (laughs) why don't hi do you want to just read the first like basically that first page okay but you have to use a southern drawl I cannot do that. I'm not going to do that. You should know that. Okay. A nurse held the door open for them. Judge McAlva going first, then his daughter, Laurel, then his wife, Faye. They walked into the windowless room where the doctor would make his examination. Judge McAlva was a tall, heavy man of 71 who customarily wore his glasses on a ribbon. Holding them in his hand now, he sat on the raised, throne-like chair above the doctor's stool, flanked by Laurel on one side and Faye on the other. Laurel McKelva Hand was a slender, quiet-faced woman in her middle forties, her hair still dark. She wore clothes of an interesting cut and texture, although her suit was wintry for New Orleans and had a wrinkle down the skirt. Her dark blue eyes looked sleepless. Faye, small and pale in her dress with the gold buttons, was tapping her sandaled foot. It was a Monday morning of early March. New Orleans was out of town for all of them. Dr. Cortland, on the dot, crossed the room in long steps and shook hands with Judge McKelva and Laurel. He had to be introduced to Faye, who had been married to Judge McKelva for only a year and a half. Then the doctor was on the stool, with his heels hung over the rung. He lifted his face in appreciative attention, as though it were he who had waited in New Orleans for Judge McAlva in order to give the judge a present or for the judge to bring him one. Nate, Laura's father was saying, the trouble may be I'm not as young as I used to be, but I'm ready to believe it's something wrong with my eyes. As though we had all the time in the world, Dr. Cortland, the well-known eye specialist, folded his big country hands with the fingers that had always looked to Laurel as if their mere touch on a crystal of a watch would convey to their skin exactly what time it was. I date this little disturbance from George Washington's birthday, Judge McAlva said. Dr. Cortland nodded as though that were a good day for it. Tell me about the little disturbance, he said. I'd come in. I'd done a little rose pruning. I retired, you know. And I stood at the end of my front porch there with an eye on the street. Faye had slipped out somewhere, said Judge McKelva, and bent on her his benign smile that looked so much like a scowl. I was only uptown in the beauty parlor, letting Murtis roll up my hair, said Faye. And I saw the fig tree, said Judge McKelva, the fig tree, giving off flashes from those old bird frighteners Becky saw fit to tie on it years back. Both men smiled. They were of two generations, but the same place. Becky was Laurel's mother. Those little homemade reflectors, rounds of tin, did not halfway keep the birds from the figs in July. You can stop there. Okay. We can just keep going. Um, I think this is really precise and really tight writing. Like every line introduces or builds on a theme and tells us so much about the characters. I think you know, it might be a little pedantic for some people to use the word that I used a minute ago to, to dig in too deep to this. Like it might be a little bit analytical, but I I think there's a, a real artfulness to, to her writing here, but in a way it's also very enjoyable. Like it feels effortless, right? It feels mm-hmm. effortless, but you also know that she's pointing you towards something without right. it feeling 
overly heavy handed. And I, th- I think there's like a real pleasantness about reading something like that. You feel like you're in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing and has a, no pun intended, actually, yes, pun intended, has a vision for where they want their story to go. And I, I just think that that's like, I, I, I really value that. Like, I, I like a book that's extremely subtle and that takes a lot of digging into to find the themes. But I think there's also something where when it feels effortless, it feels a part of the story, but you also are confident that they're taking you somewhere specific. I think that that is a very enjoyable way to read. I think, and I think wealthy is really good at that. Um, you know, like it comes from right away, the idea of a door opening, you know, the st- a story opening, a story opens with a door opening, I think is like, that tells you something. And then they're going to do a, an examination in a windowless room. So there's no natural light in a room or an examination where you have to see something clearly, but there's no window there. I think that's great. And it's um, a sight metaphor. Like it's this word, exactly. there's all kinds of words about sight, glasses, blinds, the, right. the lighting of the room. But it's the story, right? It can yeah. be the story, but also be this metaphor, this extended metaphor. He, yeah. uh, her father takes off his glasses. So he, he can't see clearly because he's wearing <laughs> his glasses. Um, you've got, she, she looks sleepless and she's got this wrinkled shirt. Like there's this suggestion of stress or tension already right away there. Um, they're out of they're strangers. They're not in their home. So we get the theme of home immediately being implied. We get, um, questions of family dynamics right away. Oh yeah. Um, we get the smile that looks like a scowl. Um, go ahead, Sean. I'm just uh, listing stuff. <laughs> right. Well, and that was the, that was what struck me was how quickly she's able to start characterizing. Uh, one mm-hmm. of my favorite details on the first page is, uh, the line about Faye small and pale in her dress with the gold buttons. Mm-hmm the gold buttons instead of gold buttons mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, yep. in one in one word communicates a whole a whole lot about Faye herself mm-hmm. uh, that this is uh, a dress that has been particularly uh, picked out for this occasion and uh, that that's uh, the kind of person she is and how she thinks about a visit to a doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> get get the dress out of the closet for me, the pale yeah. one, you know, the, the one, one with the gold, gold buttons. buttons. Yeah. Uh, and and perhaps, and maybe even that she's not, uh, you know, accustomed to having a lot of nice things in that she has a gold or a dress that she refers to as mm-hmm. the one with the gold buttons. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the very quickly establishing the dynamic of Faye as the uh, the one who is new to this relationship. And if we had read a little further, well, already right, the judge references his first wife <clears throat> very casually. Yeah, yeah, yeah even Becky, Laurel's, yeah. Laurel's clothes, not only are they wrinkled uh, because she's a little, um, you know, on her back foot or disheveled, but she, by contrast to Faye, seems far less concerned with whether or not her clothes are appropriate to the situation. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. They're, they are the clothes of her climate and not, not of new Orleans. Yeah. It suggests that she's just arrived. She's slept little on her way. Um, Heidi figs, (laughs) the fig tree, right? He sees the fig tree. And then not only does it say, um, I saw and I saw the fig tree," said George McKelva. And then it says "the fig tree!" exclamation point, as the if begging tree. us to notice this idea of the fig tree. Do you have thoughts on the introduction of this fig tree here? I'm I'm curious if that I metaphor mean, means I anything. I think of Christ cursing the fig tree, like, um, but I don't know if that's. I don't know. I think the thing that I noticed <laughs> the most about that um, is the mention of Becky. Um, mm-hmm. immediately it's very clear from the details that you all have mentioned, um, and the relate, the relationship between him and Dr. Cortland, we already know first he's a judge and he has an old friend who's a famous eye specialist, who's a doctor in new Orleans. Right. So have this sense of like the old cronies, like the good old boys. Right. Um, yeah. and, uh, and Bay is the, is is the outsider. Um, so we hmm. already know 
we, I mean, that's just, that's a very old story, right? There's old money and then there's the new girl. And we already know where to, what category to put that into. We know that right away, especially from her gold buttons and her laugh, which is as raucous as a J's. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's this shared smile that Dr. Cortland and the judge have on the bottom of page four. I saw the fig tree, said Judge McCavill. The fig tree giving off flashes from those old bird frighteners Becky saw fit to tie on it years back. Both men smiled. They were mm-hmm. two generations, but the same place. Becky was Laurel's mother, right? So we know from that that there is a club that Becky is still a part of that Faye is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and that these, there's a bond these men share that Laurel fits in. We know she fits into it because of the way she's dressed, right? She's wearing a well cut suit. She's described like small and dark and quiet. We could tell she's still part of it in Faye's on the outside. And we don't know yet exactly how to feel about that. I think until she laughs as raucous as a J and then you're like, oh, there's like a discordant note to her. Like even in the way she laughs, she is a discordant note in the room and in the story. And that I think creates a main conflict of the story just as much as the judge's sick eye does. We don't know he's going to die from it yet, but she's hmm. more a problem even than his sickness at this point. I think that's pretty good writing. It's interesting to me that he's pruning. It talks about him pruning roses. Like, is he like, it's almost like he's, he's married to Faye, but there's this like pruning of this symbol of like romance. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Becky's climber. Right. Yeah. It won't die. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So there's this, he's trying to prune back. Yeah. I just think that's so good and complicated. And then like the idea of figs, aren't figs in like, Greek and Roman literature, weren't they related to wisdom and success and things like that? Um, we well, have to look. Well, the Laurel Crown was, for sure. Yeah, right? or, oh, uh, yeah. yeah like prosperity. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, you could, wasn't in Shakespeare, if you, didn't, didn't people refer to people, at, is, wasn't that an insult to call someone a fig? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah. Maybe so. But, Sean will know. Wikipedia? <laughs> yeah. I know. I, 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 Quick I, Google I search. brush up on this. But I think that had something to do with the with the uh, the english spanish uh animosity there's some there's something cultural going on there that's maybe not universal okay okay we'll have to look this thing up about about things because that, that's it because it, part of it was uh it was related to an obscene gesture that they that they right, referred okay. to as you know, like giving giving the fig to somebody okay We'll have to we'll have to dig into this. Uh, yeah, that's right. A little bit more. It's just it's, it. It seems like there's you know she's just layering on all these these metaphors of but they're but they're they're still true to the story. Right. Like they're there and you can read them, but it doesn't like noticing them doesn't suddenly make the story irritating. Or <laughs> and if you don't want to look at them, you can still just be like, oh yeah. Fig tree, saw the fig tree, you know? Yeah, that's right. Um, do do either of you have any, like, what are the questions? I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about the idea of um, what's going to happen next when she gets alone. Like, are we going to get some interiority? But what other questions have been raised for you, Heidi, as we move into the second half of this book? What, like, what else do you want to, do you want to see resolves? I, I think that, this is, I mean, this is a novel with few characters, but all of them have like a great depth to them. So I am looking for a resolution to the question of, or maybe more insight into the question of Faye as being wicked or foolish, right? Mm-hmm. I'd like to know a little more about that. Um, I'd like to know Laurel a lot better than I feel like I do. Sean, you said that earlier. And I'm really interested in the commentary on Southern society that's being brought up. I mean, there's the psychological interpretations, the family interpretations, mm-hmm. and then there's just this question of like kind of this clash of I of um of subcultures that are being forced into the same room. And it makes it funny but also sad. And I'm interested in that. Um and 
that was another, I thought that the comparison to Jane Austen was apt related to that because that happens all the time in Jane Austen when you have this, um, this, you know, clash of social orders um, Mm -hmm. and that are both convention and character, right? Um, Mm. So, and I think that that's what we have here in this story and Southern culture lends itself to that. And maybe that's why Southern literature is so interesting on on a social level as well as on a psychological level, um, that the the distinction in Jane Austen is not just across social lines or education lines or financial ones, but it is she's constantly um, poking fun at character and mixing up uh, crossing boundaries with her characters. Um, mm-hmm. Lady Catherine de Bourgh is a great example of that. She's a very high class lady, but she's in terms of her social position, but a very low class lady in terms of her of her uh, character, right? Mm-hmm. And that like Southern literature does that too. And I'm mm-hmm. you know and 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 I see that in this novel, kind of that the commentary of between the mysteries and the manners, as as Flannery O'Connor would would call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this book sets, you know, at first that you read the, the, the phase family scenes and it seems to be sort of making fun of them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if you're, if you read it just on the surface level at first, it's kind of like insulting to lower middle-class Southern people in a way that's almost stereotypical, but wealthy goes, she, she doesn't spare the upper-class people oh, that's from right. the same sort of like like Austin with the same sort of uh I don't know not insult skewering. insult but yeah, skewering like, yeah, yeah yeah or satire yeah and even like Michaela Laurel's father we don't necessarily know how he's looked at very highly by the people in the community and they have all these stories about him but those sorts of things happen for any number of reasons and they're not necessarily always tied to the truth as Laurel herself is saying so mm-hmm. we don't know if he's actually as virtuous or as noble or as great as it's suggesting he's married um, to Faye. yeah yeah <laughs> right he obviously m- was missing something there um, the, we do have we do get the contrast though between the community that rallies around Faye, uh who is ridiculous who are ridiculous and that's true and very self-focused even in their you know their thin attempts to give comfort to <laughs> To Faye, ah, well, yeah. you know, uh, sure is a fancy coffin. I just want to steal it and give it to uh, my old my boy Ronnie who committed suicide. Roscoe, uh, Roscoe, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and he killed himself and with the, the gas oven. <laughs> and and the, the little boy thinks that sounds kind of uh, oh yeah, yeah, Wendell, yeah. And then Damn, the bridesmaids, told him a story about it, so right? Good. Who are who are silly in their own way. There's there's a dynamic of silliness among the bridesmaids as well, but they're. Mm-hmm. Their concern for Laurel is far more sincere, it seems. Uh, they are a little bit territorial, but it's uh, not so that they can get get some attention for themselves. It's because they see a little more of uh, what what right and duty demand in this situation. Uh, so there mm-hmm. is, I think they do end up coming off better better sure but uh, but no very one escapes clear. unscathed it's a, yeah there's it's a very clear it's a closed society though right and i think yes, that's right. where we're on like i'm enough of a american underdog kind of thinker to be like <laughs> to, to have read that and thought to myself i wonder if there were supposed i wonder if i there's some pathos to phase position that nobody yeah. is seeing not right. because she's a newcomer but because she's lower class yeah and 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 she's clearly hostile but she's also so out of her depth that how could she possibly not be and i actually don't know if i feel sorry for her or not i really don't i think she's awful but i i oh man there there is it's very clear that this is a closed society and Mm -hmm. she's an outsider in a circle that she's pathetically trying to gain power in and it makes her look like an idiot personally i I was gonna say the one of the things that comes out in that funeral scene is uh laurel we we learned through laurel that uh the presence of missouri the housekeeper in the family as a kind of family fixture is partly due to the judge taking her under his protection 
many years before. Uh, yeah, so perhaps true. perhaps that is uh, this cracking uh, of a door to see Faye in a similar light, that he mm. is, in fact, the optimist who <laughs> took Faye in in a different way, mm. maybe with the hopes that uh, she would find a place in this right. closed society that mm. is that is, though, loyal and and true and you know comforting in its own way to those that it accepts. Mm. Did you find yourself more or less sympathetic to, towards Faye when her family showed up? It, it, there were oscillations, sometimes more, sometimes less. <laughs> what about you, Heidi? Um, I think more. How about you? Probably more, because I think you. There's a context for what yeah. she Good question, right? And and when uh, we're reminded, when Welty reminds us that she has already denied their existence and claimed they died, I had forgotten that. But Laurel brings it up again. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then I that that. Uh, that she doesn't want to be associated with them. Right. Yeah. Doesn't want people looking for them. Doesn't want to be associated with them. Do you, Welty wrote about a wide range of characters, you know, from a class perspective in Southern mm-hmm. culture. She grew up, my understanding is she grew up, like her father was an insurance executive. Her mother was a school teacher. She kind of upper middle class, it seems like at least middle class. They lived in a Tudor revival style home, which you can go visit. So I don't, I don't think she, she definitely would not have been considered, you know, in, in phase class level, but then she went and um, worked for the WPA, the works progress administration. And I think she was a, like she would collect all these stories and take interviews and she, she, her, her father was a photographer and she followed his footsteps in that and then took photos of all this daily life in Mississippi, which kind of helped her see things more clearly than just the way she was raised. And I find it interesting that, you know, like Flannery O'Connor, for example, lived on a farm. She grew up around country folk, right? Yeah. Even though she was born in Savannah, she spent most of her life on this farm in rural Georgia. And Welsey grew up in Jackson on a kind of a different class. But then in her adult life, she then began to, to, to find these stories. And so what I'm wondering as I read more and more Eudora Welty is, is she trying to give voice to all these different people of different classes? And if so, how do we then understand Faye's family and how they're introduced to us? Because it's not necessarily flattering if she's trying to give voice to them. I don't know that I necessarily come away from them. I mean, I, 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 I come away from them feeling a little more, uh, I don't know, harsh towards them than I do excuse making for them, so to speak. Yeah. So I'm, also, what do you think? We're also laughing, right? Like mm-hmm. I think that's true. That yeah. It's, it's, I think skewering might be too strong of a word. It's satire the same way that Jane Austen is. I thought that that comparison that you made was really appropriate. That's a good point. So we don't like, if we're talking about pride and prejudice, we're laughing at Mr. Collins. Mm -hmm. We are um, laughing and casting judgment, right. And proper judgments on lady Catherine. Mm -hmm. And we are disliking and judging rightly judging Wickham. Right, mm-hmm. who's the only actual villain in the story, mm-hmm. and he's that's... not funny at all, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's kind of the case here. Like we're laughing at them in the way that we might laugh at Mr. Collins or Kitty and Lydia, and then their fate is maybe going to be similar to somebody like Kitty. And- and one of the great things about Austin is you can read Pride. Every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I feel a little differently about Columns. Right. Like in laughing at him, sometimes I have more sympathy for him. Sometimes I kind of think he gets a bad rap. And then sometimes I think, no, he's just ridiculous, right? right. From scene to scene, I can feel even feel differently about it. And there's a genius to that writing that, that every time you read it, you feel differently. And that's also sort of true about um, even like Darcy sometimes. Like I have more sympathy for him right. in certain reads certain moments in that book than I do in others because you know what's coming and all that. Do you think that right. something similar is happening here? I do. I think that that's right. And I also think that in Austin, just as in most Southern writers, including I'm learning Eudora Welty, the culture itself is under the microscope. And the, uh, so 
let's look at Charlotte Lucas, right? She marries Mr. Collins. And sometimes we, to your point, every time we read it, sometimes we're like, she did what she had to do. And sometimes you're like, <laughs> how could she marry that guy? Right? Like, and, and mm -hmm. it's, it's probably both like, but what for Charlotte, she is limited by her options in a culture. And, mm. and this is also true. I think we see that in the way Laurel responds to Wendell. You see this little boy who is, who is the sponge, like the vessel of the limitations of his family. And he is becoming like them. If you're told, like literally his grandma sits at the funeral and tells him the story of how his uncle Roscoe killed himself in the gas oven. And he's like, yay, like new, that's like the family saga of our, you know, like, and. And, and then she has to say, don't go doing that. Right. Don't go doing that now. Like who tells yeah. a seven-year-old that as like, as just like a story, like just like a family tale. Good night. At another guy. person's funeral. <laughs> At another person's funeral. And, <laughs> and she's not wicked. She's foolish. And, but he is going to become the same. Like we see him as the vessel. This culture is being handed down to him just as the judge's culture has been handed down to Laurel. And she doesn't mm. want Faye and her and that family in it at all, but mm, she yeah. cannot do anything about it. And that the limitations of the, of the culture and the social order are also under the microscope in Eudora Welty, just as mm. they are in Jane Austen. Yeah. Mm. Let's wrap this up by choosing something we haven't done in a while. I had wanted to do a question of the week on each episode and we haven't done yeah. it in a little while. So I'm curious um, if you have, an idea for a question that we should get people's feedback on. It could be an opinion that we're something, a problem we want solved. Sean, what do you think? What do you think? Uh, well, I, I think that maybe candidates could be, uh, I mean, can they be forward looking or are we trying to figure out something for to interpretive to ask about the first half of the book? Okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I don't care. Uh, so, I mean, the open-ended question could be speculating about who the optimist is or about where Faye's going to come out in all of this. Uh, is Faye, you know, Heidi called her the antagonist earlier, uh, is Faye uh, destined to be rehabilitated by the end of this novel? Or is there something else uh, that... Uh, I mean, if she, I, I haven't read the novel before. She could be cruising out of the book forever, but that seems unlikely. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I have so many questions about this novel that I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the question. How, how do you, what do you think? Three part three has a lot of work to do, doesn't it? Yeah, right. Um, and I we're am, well, we're well over halfway too. Yeah, yeah. I am excited just to read because I, this is the kind of book that I just like to read, as David said. Um, like I'm aware as I read it of, of the, like being in the hands of the master, like I said. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I also am, I just want to understand Laurel better. I mm -hmm. want to understand the nature of her grief and I want her to find some kind of peace, even though her family's legacy is going to Faye. And that mm -hmm. actually makes me a little sad and angry. I don't think Faye deserves it. And I am sad about that, but I'm hoping that she can find some peace and I'm hoping we get into her interiority um, and especially her relationship with her mother. So that is what I am hoping for. Well, okay. So then as far as the question that we have people at answer, why don't we ask about people's sympathy towards Faye? Yeah. It's because in case we, so in the comments under this episode, tell us, are you sympathetic? And to what, if so, what, to what degree? no, as answer to what degree are you sympathetic? Yeah, I like that towards Faye because mm -hmm. that allows you to uh, to crush her if, if necessary. If you're yes. if you feel degrees. if you feel it, your duty. <laughs> uh, we'll have to ask Heidi something about uh, duty and desire in this book because it does, as with every book, seem to be under the surface somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, that I think that about wraps up this episode. We've we've kind of uh, we've used up our allotted amount of time out of your lives. So what is our uh, allotted amount of time? I don't know anything about this. Is I mean, it one yeah. hour? It's rough. We we plan on roughly an hour. Okay. And then here we are. I, yeah, that's true. <laughs> here yeah. we are. And other times, there we are. Uh, <laughs> don't forget 
to uh, to check out our conversation on Paralander. We've done one episode on that. We've and gotten a lot of good the feedback, feedback has been good. It. Like best close read episode I've ever listened to type comments. Um, Which raises the bar. It, uh, no, it raises a lot of questions about how many episodes that person has listened to, but also the bar. <laughs> <laughs> but I did Wait, feel pretty we... good about that one. There's nowhere to go but down from there. I know, right? So oh nervous. Gosh, you guys are listen weird. next episode. Weird. Listen next singer. time. Ugh. Yeah, I've never Sean, thought you know that what? in my whole life. Here's what we'll don't, do, Sean. We'll just turn. To we're going to rely on Heidi next episode to really <laughs> well, carry. Just keep talking about the book. Yeah, yeah. it's a uh, commentary the, on the book, not on us. The book, the book very true work for us. Very yeah, true. That's right. Yeah. And we will be uh, talking about the next three or four chapters. Um, so we're excited to excited to do that. Um, oh man. Chapter okay. five, by the way, chapter five in Paralandra is what started the whole duty and desire thing. Oh, oh. so Heidi really is going to carry that conversation. Yeah, yeah. I yep. have things to say. I hear it already. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Don't forget to leave us a comment with what you think about, uh, you know, where your sympathies are in relation to to Faye in this book. Um, don't forget to check out the Paralandra conversations. Um, we've got lots of stuff going on over at Close Reads HQ, including. Mary Jo Tate's introduction to to your door wealthy if you want to learn more about her Um, thanks Heidi thanks Sean this has been fun thanks David you're fun (laughs) well for the two of them I'm David Kern until next time happy reading (laughs) 